Welcome to Rafa Radio, a series of podcasts in which we explore the investment universe and share our interpretation of what's going on. 1994 was a vintage year for cinema. It was the year of Pulp Fiction, Shawshank Redemption, and Four Weddings and a Funeral. But it's a line from a different 1994 classic, which has come to occupy a special little corner in the consciousness of financially-minded folk. Now, I'll spare you the Tom Hanks impression, but it went something like this. Lieutenant Dan got me invested in some kind of fruit company. So then I got a call from him saying, we don't have to worry about money no more. And I said, that's good. One less thing. That was Forrest Gump, of course, and the fruit company was Apple. And so he became that rarest breed of investor who spent a lifetime not worrying about money. Today, I'm joined by our chairman, Jonathan Ruffer, who's been doing quite the opposite, worrying about money on his client's behalf since finding the business in 1994. We'll cover lots of ground today on Ruffer Then and Ruffer Now, Jonathan's approach to investing and what it takes to get started, keep going and get started again. Jonathan, thanks very much for joining. It's a great pleasure to be with you. So what led you to plant the initial seed that we now know as Ruffer, a global all-weather asset manager? Investment has been around probably as long as the saber-toothed tiger. And generally speaking, if something's been around for thousands and thousands of years, there isn't uh, any new way of doing things. But I have a particular makeup. I am extremely risk averse. And many uh, investment managers I've met um, claim to be risk averse. And um, they don't seem to realize that if your job is making returns out of taking risk, to say that you're risk averse is rather like being a fighter pilot and admitting that you're a coward. It's uh, not a good thing. It's a bad thing. But it's a thing that is true of who I am. And whether I'm boasting or apologizing, uh, that is one of the elements uh, that informs the investment decisions that I've always made. But without a yang on the other side of the yin, it seems to me to be doing one's job with a handbrake on. And the other side of that is that I, I have a compulsion uh, to take risk, and it's often nonplussingly big and dangerous risks. And it's the uh, struggle between these two opposites which uh, created a way of investment which we adopted when we opened our doors in 1994, and the articulation of which hasn't missed a beat in the 30-odd years that we've done since then. And I would articulate it like this, that we take genuine and often quite powerful risks with people's money, but instead of using uh, the risks that we take to optimize uh, and maximize the returns that the portfolios make, we do it to try and ensure that net-net 
the portfolio will never lose money. And um, over what period of time? Uh, quite often when you buy something, 20 minutes later, it's cheaper. So you have to have a time scale. And we say commercially, um, uh, um, give us a year. If we're not at least all square um, one year from where we were one year ago, then we're failing in the mandate that we invest money against. Now, in fact, one year is too shorter period of time. Uh, but if you ask for 15 years, which is absolutely long enough, uh, people have spent half a lifetime discovering that you weren't the right people to have their money with. So one year is a compromise. We take money for a year from a client. And while I don't want to be judged uh, against shorter timescale as that, it nevertheless puts both sides on a, on notice that if after a year, uh, we're not doing very well. Jonathan, the inversion of return maximization and uh, loss minimization, it's not that common in the world of investors. Why don't you think more firms invest the way we do? Uh, I, I think um, half the answer to that is very easy. That um, if you look at uh, the cadre of clever clogs investors, they're all hedge funds. They all charge performance fees. And um, if your mandate is trying uh, 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 to see the return that you make as a residual rather than a target, then by definition, uh, you disqualify yourself from charging a performance fee. Now, if you look at the work that we do here, it has uh, uh, much in common with the thought processes and disciplines uh, that the hedge funds with a 2% annual charges and 20% um, performance fee uh, that they make, uh, but we can't do that and look people in the eye. And um, uh, I have a rule that if you can't look people in the eye, uh, then you shouldn't be looking at them at all. Jonathan, previously, you've described yourself as first and foremost an, an historian, um, having worn lots of different hats uh, over the years. Uh, why do you say that? Did you even say that? Um, and if so, why? <laughs> I don't remember saying that. I mean, given that I don't think uh, in the panorama of life, uh, historians are a very elevated species. I suspect I was just feeling sorry for myself at the time if I did say it. But history is important in informing the way that you think about financial markets. It, it absolutely is. Uh, um, uh, I'm fascinated by history because it seems to me that it brings two things together, one of great simplicity and one of great complexity. And the simplicity is that within a human being, there are only so many reactions uh, that are possible to events. Uh, you can be intrigued by them, you can be frightened by them, you can be energized by them. And when you top them all up, probably comes to about 15 of them. But if you look back over all the events that have happened since Herodotus first started uh, writing down events that were behind the human race, what you uh, can see is a kaleidoscope of different situations 
which on the face of it have nothing in common with one another. But actually the, the role of a historian is to um, sift through events looking for patterns. And I put it uh, uh, rather cheesily. I say that when a Roman soldier saw Boadicea on a chariot, uh, he felt pretty much the same as a British infantryman felt when he saw General Guderian on a panzer. Now, panzers can do quite a lot more and quite a lot of different things to a chariot. Uh, but it's the fact that that sensation of fear is a constant, um, that what I found is that uh, patterns of events uh, are as much caused by patterns of human reactions as they are to um, the exogenous historicity of the events themselves. It's interesting, and I don't mean to be uh, reductive, um, but this is about psychology. This is about human behavior. If we're saying that what really matters, what drives people is their emotional response to things, that that is a, a unique approach to this sort of infinitely complex financial market environment, is it not? I, I, I think that's right. But whereas the, the, the scientist would be looking... Um, we'll be digging down into the nuances. Let's take this fear. Let's subdivide it. And let's uh, subdivide the subdivisions. So you would have lots of Latinate words for different degrees of these things. Whereas I see the reactions as um, blunt instruments, because what I'm not, inter I'm not interested in actually what people think. Uh, what I'm interested in is what they do. And that requires much less science of how human beings are. You simply see what they've done. It's rather like looking at the slime that a slug leaves. I'm sure a scientist would be able to say, ah, this slug is in a good mood because having tested the, uh, 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 the, 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 the chemical uh, uh, um, uh, construction of its slime. I found this, this, and this. I'm only interested in the fact uh, that a slug has been there. Mm, not how shiny that slime is. That's pretty broad brush. Um, <laughs> so <Still> it is. <laughs> I think that your approach is characterised more more by big picture thinking, um, and and much less the the granularity. How does that translate, that big picture thinking, into deciding which assets to put into a portfolio at any given time? When one's first response, that's a good question. Uh, that's usually uh, a synonym for, I can't think of the answer. But what it's done for me, and I can't honestly remember whether I thought, here's a way of investing, now I've got a lot of prep to do, or whether I was um, doing it compulsively, and I strongly suspect it was the latter. But I've, um, uh, uh, I know more about what has happened in the investment market over the last couple of hundred years uh, than anybody else I've ever met. And the reason is that I'm reading, reading, reading um, what particularly uh, 
contemporary reports, um, one of the things that those of us, uh, those people who've been to um, the office in 80 Victoria Street will see lots of uh, share certificates, um, all of which are of companies that went bust, because otherwise they wouldn't have been hanging on our wall. And stock exchange price lists from the 1820s and 1830s. And I find these viscerally exciting. I've got a good marriage, and the only time that I uh, have regarded my marriage in difficulties was when um, Jane and I went off on a holiday uh, uh, to a, a marvellous hotel, and it was just going to be a time of holding hands and um, um, eating puddings and uh, just luxuriating in the nothingness of it all. And I took as um, reading uh, the uh, 1937 Stock Exchange Yearbook, which turned out to be galvanically interesting, uh, because uh, December the 31st, 1936, was um, the only occasion in the history of the UK equity market index where it was possible still to be behind uh, in real terms after 50 years. And so, in other words, this was, a, this was a high point beyond high points. And, of course, uh, once I'd realized that... Um, Partners holding hands is, it didn't compare with the um, price of Whitbread debentures, which is what um, I'm afraid took priority. That's extraordinary. Do you, now you clearly acknowledge that that's an unusual uh, character trait to have. Certainly my wife's view. <laughs> is it an essential one to who you are as an investor? Yes, I, I, it undoubtedly is, because what it does, we, we ultimately, we spend more time, more energy, um, more care on our preoccupations than we do on the things that we ought to do. I've just been um, uh, lucky enough to do my senior management annual exam to check that I'm a proper person. Now... I have to say, if any of the regulators are listening, that I was really, really fascinated by the topic, but I think marginally less so than on um, those myriad of um, factors which come to make the investment world go round. Over the last 30 years, three decades, Jonathan, you've clearly proved that... Um, you know, you, you can invest and uh, and, and invest well. Um, part of that has been identifying other people who can invest well um, and who can join you on, on the investment journey. What do you look for in other people as a good indicator? They might be different to you, but what do you look for in other people as a, as a good indicator of their potential future success as investors? I would say the first thing that you need is a, a strong sense that um, any one person uh, can't do it all. Um, if, if you look at some of the great firms, uh, there is one person who 
uh, is the rainmaker. Now, what is interesting to me at Rafa is that we have several rainmakers. And I think I would say I'm a rainmaker, but I define myself by my investment inadequacies, not by my investment strengths. So what that means is that I absolutely need uh, other people to come in and fill those gaps. And that's not just other people as a foil to your ideas. probably never has been. These are genuinely different ways of thinking. Absolutely. Now, one such person uh, was Henry Maxey, who who joined Ruffer in 1998. I think he might have even been in before that as an an intern. Mm. Um, How would you compare and contrast your style with, with Henry's in the first instance, but then also Neil McLeish, who joined as co-chief investment officer last year? Henry is um, one of the remarkable investors of his generation. Um, and he, his nature is not to uh, uh, hold to himself um, the knowledge and the insights and the experience that he has. And... I think had he done that, he would still be probably the most remarkable of all the investors I've I've ever met. And I've met some of the very greatest who have uh, been around in the last 50 years. But uh, his style um, is to um, open his book and open his mind uh, to other people. So what he has is a network of remarkable people who he can call on at times when that other person's skill is most needed. And that means that there are barely any, um, uh, uh, there's barely any turbulence that Henry is not talking to some key player in that particular uh, neck of the of the ocean water, and people who who reach out to other experts also uh, seem to have the talent, as Henry certainly does, to bring on um, other people and to train them up in a particular way of thinking. And you mentioned Neil McLeish. Well, Neil is really a poacher turned gamekeeper. He was uh, one of uh, uh, the people who Henry uh, has been talking to since 1927 or so. And um, uh, it seemed appropriate and made sense to both sides that Neil should join us. Although Neil is, is quite a new name to Rafa, to the Rafa investment process, um, he's Mr. Greybeard. How do you know when you've made a mistake with an investment? It's very difficult to know uh, whether one has made a mistake. Um, I think I found it easier in the days when I was running money because for, for a long time, all my investment thoughts translated into my investment action, whereas now that isn't uh, um, the case. And so um, the, the cause and effect is uh, not as it used to be. But what I 
found was that I was rather surprised to discover when I analysed my work that a lot of my performance came from the fact that although I seem to make the same number of mistakes as I uh, as things that I got right, I'd find that the things that I got right, I had a lot more money in than the things that I got wrong. And I tried to think about what it was that caused that to happen. Was it because I had a greater confidence in the things that turned out to be right? And it wasn't that. I think what it, what it was was that I was very disciplined on the units of investment that I made. And I would always want, in my initial purchase, to be able to go on buying more of that particular asset um, if and when it fell away in price. And so um, if I bought a stock which raced upwards, then I wouldn't... uh, I'd find I wouldn't have owned very much of it. But if I bought a stock and over the next six months it kept on falling, um, the effect on me, if whenever I analysed and reanalysed and re-reanalysed the situation, I found it to be as compelling as ever, then um, I would have the confidence uh, to, to put a great deal of money into it. One of the things I'm sure you want to ask me at some point, what am I making of the world uh, now? But I'm absolutely bubbling over at the moment with um, the Japanese yen. Uh, um, uh, The yen is um, uh, 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 the sort of currency uh, which Neville Chamberlain would have enjoyed, a faraway place about which we know nothing. But the key to the yen is that it has always, um, uh, in the last two generations, had a very low yield. And that has meant that at times of mania in the market, it has always been a a currency that people who wanted to borrow up to the hilt um, would use Uh, to pay as little as possible in interest charges. If you pay 1% for borrowing uh, a million pounds of yen, um, but it costs you 6% to to borrow a million pounds of sterling, uh, then if you borrow in yen and then immediately convert the yen to sterling, you have a currency mismatch, but you're still only paying 1% on your borrowings. Now, that's fine until it isn't fine. And as more and more people join the party and they hear from their best friends, don't borrow in dollars, don't borrow in euros, don't borrow in sterling, borrow in the yen, uh, that drives the yen further and further down. Because uh, on day one, uh, you borrow all the yen, and half an hour after you own it, you sell it. You sell it for the currency of the asset that you wanted to own it in. Now, what that means is that for a long time, the yen uh, dribbles down until suddenly it snaps back. Now, that is something that I routinely look out for. So just in the same way 
that um, a dog at the dinner table um, scouts around for the messiest eater, I do the same thing with the yen. I'm looking for the messiest central banker. And there are circumstances in domestic Japan which indicate that there is a possibility that the local uh, uh, institutions might uh, need to repatriate all the holdings that they have in, for them, foreign government bonds. And if they do that, they will be doing it to invest in Japan. So they will need to convert the foreign currencies into uh, uh, into yen. So you have two car crashes waiting to happen at a time when everybody hates the yen and where the yen, uh, in terms of what it'll buy in the shop, couldn't be cheaper. Uh, now, I was born uh, in the year of the Battle of Bannockburn, and in my life, I cannot offhand think of a better risk-reward than that at the moment. Than the yen, and, and that's reflected in portfolios. It is indeed reflected in the portfolios. Jonathan, do you think that investors and clients the world over are adequately served by the investment industries offering today? The investment management industry, in my view, um, is a dishonest one. And I don't mean by that that lots and lots and lots of the other people are dishonest, but luckily you're talking to honest Joe, uh, Jonathan Ruffer. Um, I think we are all under the cosh of the fact that our job is an impossibility. Our job is to foretell the future, and it can't be done. And so when people come and say, shall I bring you my money, um, the true answer is I haven't a clue, because if I'm uh, about to have a good spell, then the answer is yes, you should. And if I'm about to have a whoopsie, then the answer is you're better off elsewhere. And what that means is that marketing in the investment management industry has to be obfuscated. I can't get the word out. Obfuscating. Uh, obfuscating. Oh, there we go. Uh, I'm there very, very pleased with myself, <laughs> So um, you don't talk about whether you've made money or lost money. You talk about uh, performance um, against an index. And at the centre of it, what the plant wants, we don't know whether we can provide. And that has distorted the whole way that um, the industry looks. And we've been in a bull market since 1980. That's 42 years. Uh, and the reason is simple, that interest rates have come down for 42 years. Now, from November 2021, um, interest rates have gone up, and they've gone up very sharply to the sort of level where in 19th and early 20th century terms would be the absolute upper range that interest rates ever got to. The average rate was sort of three, three and a half percent, and here we are at over five. Now, five is consistent with really dangerous market conditions, and yet we're not seeing it yet. Now, I think that uh, when we look back over this period in 50 years' time, 
what one will see is that a bear market started at, at exactly the time that interest rates went up. And it will take uh, some pernickety person to say, mm, well, that isn't quite right. You know, it was, it, you know, it was a couple of years before that um, really started to kick in. And it just happened that we're in that couple of years at the moment. Two years ago, three years ago, uh, just about every player would have said, oh, if interest rates go up to over 5%, what will happen to the market? Uh, people would say, well, you won't see, see it for dust. But when interest rates did go up and the market didn't collapse, now everybody's uh, very comfortable that uh, there are six good reasons before breakfast why this isn't consistent with the market falling. Let, let me say to you, why, why have I had a good record on reading the tea leaves? I think it's because all the predictions I've made are blindingly obvious, but they are not um, consistent with putting a timing on it. Now, here's, here's an example. I think that in, in three years' time, uh, if anybody comes to me and says, Johnson, you know, you were so right about that market, you know, when in, you know that now, now we can see that interest rates cause the market to go down. You know, that, that, that's giving a chimpanzee a banana territory. Um, it, it's so obvious. But if in November 21 we had invested for that, and luckily, I had a team who were bigger and more astute and more nuanced than me. I, I would have hazarded the ship for it. Uh, I would have broken my rule that I never put a timing on anything. I say, well, this is such an obvious, such an obvious one that I think we can pretty much take it for granted. The timing will be immediate. It wasn't. And that proves rather perversely uh, one half of my mantra, that it's very easy to predict the next big thing, but don't try to put a timing on it. And also the difficulty is, you know, you've got to own something. I'm interested in the six reasons that investors find for, uh, you know, asset prices to rise before breakfast. Over the course of history, asset prices have generally gone up. So are you saying that for a period undefined period, that's just not going to be the case? It, it only looks as though um, prices uh, go up um, because one telescopes those periods when they don't. Um, the Wall Street crash happened in 1929 and it took until 1954 to um, uh, recover its poise. Now, that defines how people regarded investment opportunities. But when you look at a chart of American shares between 1900 and 2000, you find that in real terms, they went up 200-fold. Now, that's the argument. Elroy, Dimson, and Marsh wrote a book proving this. And if you are asked for evidence of why equities are a good place to be, uh, that is the authority that's usually quoted. But there were 25 years in America from 1925, and I've already quoted 
uh, the Stock Exchange Yearbook of 1937, where you'd have to wait for the Stock Exchange Yearbook of 1986 before uh, you got your money back. So timing is essential. There's a question which... Uh... I'm hesitant to to ask because it sounds uh, just a, a a bit blasé. Um, you've talked about the yen. Um, it, it feels like the potentially the currency or asset du jour. Um, historically, you've described uh, the linkers or the index-linked bonds as um, jewels in the portfolio crown. Are you still as excited about the potential of index-linked gilts to protect capital, to preserve capital over the long run? Index-linked bonds were uh, first issued by Britain in 1981 uh, which was um, the first year for about 30 uh, uh, when uh, the asset class became uh, increasingly irrelevant. And so uh, the truth is that uh, index-linked um, have been uh, a, an investment to protect the world from something that uh, has not needed that protection uh, ever since they were issued. Now, the relationship between a conventional fixed interest stock and an inflation-linked bond um, is simple. The conventional bond is a domino with just one number on it. Uh, it tells you uh, uh, how much yield you will get uh, from the coupon until it matures. The index-linked stock has two numbers on the uh, domino. One is the same as the conventional, and the other is it says will protect you uh, from the fall in the value of money between now and when the bond matures. Nobody has had occasion really to work out what that uh, second number on the domino is worth. Now, I believe that we have finished quite a long period when prices were tending to fall, tending towards deflation with the problems that come with deflation. And that now we are in an extended period, it might be five years, it might be 25 years, might be 50 years, but it's a long, long period of time when inflation is going to be sometimes um, as powerful as a hurricane and sometimes as gentle as a breeze, but one way and cumulatively uh, very destructive of what's going on. And so this second number on the, uh, uh, on the domino is the only sure way that one can get an arithmetic idea of the safety from that chronic disease as it will become. Was there ever a point in your investing career that you didn't 
worry about inflation? I'm a child of the 1970s. And so I suspect a psychologist could say uh, that we all uh, manifest the preoccupations of the period that we grew up in. I think it was the Jesuits who said, uh, give me the child, I'll give you the man. And I'm uh, a child of a period where inflation was so nonplussingly all-consuming. I remember looking at a half-crown, that was a 12.5p coin, and um, thinking, in two or three years' time, this is going to be worth a florin, which is a 10p coin, and realising there was absolutely nothing one could do about that. Jonathan, is the rougher investment strategy in some size, in some weighting of, of an individual or an institution's portfolio, is there anyone in the world for whom it's not appropriate? Who shouldn't be a rougher investor? I didn't think I'd go as far as to say shouldn't, but the people who I think what we do is aimed at is the people with money. In other words, if you haven't got money and you need to um, take a few risks to get money, then we're not really the people to do it. Because if uh, getting from Aix to Gaunt as quickly as you can, uh, you probably want to be a pillion on a motorbike. Uh, we are a, a car um, with a well-used handbrake. So um, we do everything slowly. Uh, slowly and surely is a, a, a formula that works well for those people who are perhaps more keen, either because of the arithmetic or because of the way that they're made, keeping uh, uh, that safe. Uh, but what we have done over 30 years is to provide the best of both worlds. We provided an equity-style return for a uh, risk volatility return of enormously less than that. Now, I suspect that in the next 30 years, we will outperform equities again. But I think the reason for that is that I think equities are something of a busted flush. Uh, but that's another story. And another story for another day. Jonathan, thanks very much for your time. Um, and we look forward to, to hearing that story at some point in the future. Rory, thanks very much. And thank you for listening. You can subscribe to Rougher Radio on the App Store, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The views expressed in this podcast are the views of Rougher LLP. They do not constitute as investment research or advice and may be subject to change. Rougher LLP is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority in the UK and is registered as an investment advisor with the US Securities Exchange Commission, the SEC. Registration with the SEC does not imply a certain level of skill or training. Thank you.